welcome to the Cranberry Chronicles, a podcast where we'll be discussing all things cranberries, including where they come from, why we love them, and how they love us back. We'll be delivering a fresh science-backed perspective on health, wellness, and nutrition trends translated into a language we can all use. We are so excited to be sitting down with a variety of food, health, and industry experts for in-depth conversations that we hope will enhance the work you do and that it will also inspire you to live a healthier life. So whether you're a registered dietitian, health professional, wellness enthusiast, or just a cranberry connoisseur, we welcome you. I'm your host, Bonnie Taub Dix, a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and lifestyle expert. Today, I am joined by cranberry grower, Nicole Hansen, to talk all things cranberries and sustainability. After growing up on a dairy farm with her mother and sisters in Wisconsin, Nicole ventured to North Dakota and obtained her bachelor's of science degree majoring in biology and minoring in chemistry. While furthering her education, she worked during the summers with a consultant from IPM, which stands for Integrated Pest Management in Cranberries, eventually working full-time in this industry, where she now assists in the operation and management of growing cranberries with Cranberry Creek Cranberries, located in Northern Juneau County, Wisconsin. Nicole currently serves on the Cranberry Institute Board, where she chairs the Horticulture Committee. She also serves on the Public Policy and Education Committees of the Wisconsin State Cranberry Growers Association. Nicole recently won the Service to Industry Award by Wisconsin State Cranberry Growers Association. And I know she's really proud about that. She is deeply involved in research and collaboration with the University of Wisconsin Research and Extension personnel. And as you'll hear today, together they have great interest in the future research needs of the cranberry industry. Most importantly, Nicole, along with her husband, has the privilege of raising four amazing children, enjoying the pleasures of rural living. And welcome, Nicole, to our podcast. I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you, Bonnie. I'm excited to be here as well to talk all things cranberry. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about your journey in cranberry farming. Has this business been in your family for years and what inspired you to do what you do? Yeah, so the business has not been in my family, um, but I work for a family oriented um, business. They they have third generation uh, cranberry growers here. What drove me to really get into cranberries is it really kind of fell into place, which is kind of neat. Um, I had went off to, I grew up on a dairy farm, like it said in my bio with uh, my mom and, and sisters. And my father's parents had started the farm. And I knew um, when I was a senior in high school that I really didn't want to uh, be a dairy farmer uh, in, in my future. And so, but I loved the way of life of farming and what it can offer and raising kids. And so what I did is I went off to college. I studied, I loved the science sciences. I studied science and uh, biology and chemistry, really looking at what my next step was, ended up getting a job working as an IPM consultant, like we spoke earlier. And, um, that meant I would travel around to different cranberry marshes and would look for insects, weeds, and disease. And we would make uh, recommendations on what might work or how to 
help control if they were meeting uh, thresholds, things like that. And so that background led me into cranberries. One of the, where I currently work is one of the properties that we consulted on and I was approached to, to come on and uh, take care of the plants. And so it kind of, from there, it kind of just fell into place. Like I said earlier, it's a way of life. And for us, we're able to raise our four children with just many benefits. It sounds to me like your um, your educational background certainly brought you to where you are. And I know that in, in my own educational background, there was a heavy emphasis on the sciences, but I was never exposed to that rich connection to farming as you did, but you had the upbringing with your family, even though you knew you didn't want to work on a dairy farm, it seems like your your steps, the steps that you took and perhaps the um, just the exposure to cranberries then led you to do what you're doing now. It has. Yes. As far as being able to have the opportunity to care for the plants um, and and be entrusted with them, it not only provides the satisfaction of of the opportunity to be stewards of the land. It also helps us in raising our children. You know, we're always teaching. There's just so many life lessons you can learn from nature and from from the land and from farming. And they're just so intricately connected that the opportunity is something that you we just can pass up. And so my science, you know, I had a deep interest in, you know, engineering and um, computers and biology and lab and and research. And what happened is it it all came together in growing cranberries. I remember that you said that where we grow our cranberries and our plants is the same place that we grow our children, our pets, our families, where where you and your husband live. And, um, you know, what it just made me think about is this symbiosis of the elements that are around us you know the how how raising our families and also picking a profession if you could bring them in concert with each other it's like instruments in a, in a band um and it's incredible how uh you could really see the difference that it makes and and i could hear from the way that you've described what your job is and how seriously you take your job and how you care about the environment how everything goes you know, hand in hand. And it's, I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but, you know, most people don't even know how a gra- how a cranberry is grown and harvested. And it wasn't until I saw a mock cranberry bog at the Food and Nutrition Expert, uh, Expo rather, that I actually learned about how cranberries grow. And I will say, even though, as I said, I'm a little embarrassed about this, is that I think most of us thought and including myself, that cranberries grow like grapes and that grapes turn into raisins when they're dried because I love dried cranberries, but I know that this is not the case and and I know you know exactly how they grow. So can you tell us a little bit about how cranberries are actually grown and harvested? Yeah, let's walk through that. And I think the best way to do that is, you know, to first talk about the misconception that's out there, it, like you mentioned, is a lot of the media shows cranberries floating in water and that really beautiful red color. Um, and that happens for about a month to a month and a half every year. And that's the only time that happens. Cranberries actually do not grow in water. They need 
water to survive, but if they're underwater for extended period of times, it will kill them. And so that's one of the big misconceptions that we hear a lot is, well, I thought the, these grew underwater. But let's go through, and we'll start at the harvest time. And really harvest time starts in um, mid-September and lasts through the end of October here in the U.S. and Canada. And um, really what we do is there's two kind of two methods of harvesting. There's a fresh harvest method and a processed harvest me harvest method. Um, and really the fruit that I grow, I grow for processed fruit, which means juice and sauce and dried cranberries, anything that would uh, could go into a freezer and then go into the processor. And so what we do is we, we utilize water for harvest. We will bring the water up about eight inches up on top of the surface of the bed. Of course, if you've never seen a cranberry operation, the we call them beds in Wisconsin, they call them bogs in Massachusetts. So it just depends on what region you're from. There'll be a little bit of difference in the communication, but uh, we they are typically outlined by a dike. And so we flow water on the cranberry plants and get it about eight inches above the soil. And at that point, we take a, a tractor through there and we knock off the fruit. And what that happens is because the fruit has four air chambers, that fruit floats on the water. And at that point, we drive our tractor out and we bring the water up to about 12 inches, enough to get the fruit above the top of the cranberry vines. And what happens is the wind will blow the fruit to the corner and we're able to corral it and convey it out of the bed and take it up to the receiving station or the cleaning station where we can clean the fruit. And what happens then is we clean it, we put it into bins and we ship it to the freezer. That's the benefit of cranberries is when you harvest them, you can take them and ship them to the freezer. And because of the, the skins and the flesh and the makeup of the cranberry, um, the frozen cranberry, you can pull it out of the freezer and uh, thaw it and you can use it in dishes just like you would a fresh cranberry. So you, uh, Everything that you're saying really relies upon not only your smarts, your equipment, but so much relies upon Mother Nature. It does. Because if the wind isn't there, if it's too cold, if it's too hot, um, then obviously you're not going to have a, a smooth running operation as, uh, as you would expect. Do you run into a lot of issues? I mean, is it overly cold where you are um, in terms of just growing cranberries and having to go through this process? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's, I think the plant, the reason we harvest in the end of September and October is because of the plant's adaptation to um, the day length and also the temperature change. And so typically in September, it can be a little bit warmer. By the time you get to October in Wisconsin, um, your temperatures can fluctuate, but they're typically we have a process that we can utilize in growing cranberries called frost protecting, where we turn the irrigation on and we can run irrigation and the ice will freeze. And because the ice is releasing heat, as long as you're freezing ice every so many minutes or freezing water every so many minutes, that the ice will freeze and release heat and protect the plants from getting damaged. So freezing actually could protect the plants. The freezing ice does protect the plants. Mm, that seems counterintuitive. It does. So really in the fall, you harvest. And at that point, 
the neat thing about cranberries is you're actually taking care of two crops at once. So because cranberries are a, a long trailing evergreen vine that typically you try to grow about four to six inches of growth each year, and that vine will continue just to kind of lay along the ground, uh, pop up to see the sun on the current year's growth. But what happens is because it's a perennial plant, the bud for with next year's crop starts forming in there June to July. And so by the time you get to harvest, you're not only protecting your current year's fruit, but you are protecting next year's fruit as well. Um, our main goal in the winter here in Wisconsin, because we can get cold temperatures down below zero, is we want to form a layer of 12 to 18 inches of ice to protect the plants once uh, we get to the end of December. And so we have 12 to 18 inches of ice that we leave out there uh, or that stays out there until it warms up in the spring. And the goal with that is to keep them covered. So if you've ever seen your evergreen bushes when you're driving along the road, how some of them are brown in the spring. Well, what's happened is the wind has dried them out as the frost has limited any moisture uptake through the roots. Um, a cultural practice that we, we incorporate in the winter, which becomes extremely important in managing some of the pests and controlling diseases and um, insects is we put a layer, a half inch layer of sand on every three years. And so there's a three-year rotation of that. And what happens is what we drive out on the ice, we spread a half inch layer of sand and that melts down through the ice when the ice melts in the spring. Very interesting. And all of this is happening. I mean, obviously you're laying down the sand, but in terms of that thick layer of ice, do you allow that to happen naturally that it melts in the spring? Uh, we do. Yep. Very interesting. And then uh, what happens in the summer? So as we move from the spring and work the frost out of the out of the ground, we flush our irrigation systems and we get our sprinkler systems up and working and frost protection starts at that point. And we move into the late spring and summer where we start IPM practices. So we'll be monitoring weeds and diseases and insects. Um, the neat thing about that is we start right away as ice is off on monitoring anything that could be, be a problem. And we have knowledge and we're, it's, it's really neat that we're out there walking through our, our beds and looking at our plants and watching what's, what they're telling us. And so we want to understand what they need not only from a nutritional standpoint, but also from a pest problem standpoint. So we, we will not make any decisions without understanding what are variables and, and bringing in data. Yes, and I know that um, when it comes to pest control, that there are some pests that actually are beneficial pests that help us get rid of other pests that are destructive pests. Um, how do you know what kind of um, pesticides or um, chemicals to use that would be safe, but yet can um, help cranberries grow without um, it affecting consumers? The neat thing about the cranberry uh, industry or the growing cranberries is we have multiple tools that we use. We have cultural practices, we have biological practices, and we have chemical uh, control practices. And we use them um, interchangeably. It just depends on what is the best option for, for all the variables around us. And so when you look at beneficial insects, we have a, a huge interest in um, protecting pollinators. We, we actually hire or contract honeybees in 
during flowering time, which is mid-June to mid-July. And we bring in about over our, myself, uh, our property itself brings in over 200 million honeybees. What? Um, during the pollination season. And so we do not want to make any decisions that are going to cause any problems with the honeybees that we're bringing in. Well, so there is a actually a symbiotic relationship with honeybees and cranberries. And how tell me a little bit about how honeybees relate to the growing process of cranberries. Sure. So uh, cranberries rely on a pollination. Uh, the pollen needs to be transferred from plant to plant and or from flower to flower. And uh, so we bring in the honeybees to help facilitate that process. Um, a little bit of deep dive into bees. We also can bring in bumblebees. Bumblebees are a very efficient pollinator, a true pollinator. So anybody that has a love for bumble or honeybees, um, it's really neat to do a study there. Uh, the bumblebees, how they actually pollinate. Honeybees are, um, they're actually searching for the nectar. And so they're, they're actually going in and pretty much just looking for the nectar and are transferring the pollen um, as uh, unintended consequence. And so, uh, but the sheer numbers with honeybees versus the numbers with bumblebees can, you know, you look at what you have to numbers and honeybees and the number of visits that they make can be tremendous. So uh, we use a combination of honey and bumblebees on our property. And um, I always like to tell our, our students when they tour that if you if you look at how a honeybee communicates, they have patterns that they fly um, in order to direct all the, the workers and really what they're supposed to do. So there's amazing communication going on even within the honeybee community. That is so fascinating. And they are two questions that I have is that they are both there at the same time, the honeybees and the bumblebees, and they get along. And the other question is, um, when you go there, uh, are you there while the bees are literally swarming and doing their jobs? That's a great question. And by the way, Bonnie, we're always looking for people that are willing to come count the honeybees for us. So count if you them? get any about, yes. <laughs> If you get any volunteers, one by one as they fly in. Okay, let's hope that our listeners are interested <laughs> in coming there. I know that this stuff is really, it's just incredible to see this. And I've been to um, orchards, almond orchards, and I've heard about how the honeybees um, help to pollinate the almonds as well. So this stuff to me is always just amazing. Um, so yeah, so they do get along the honeybees and the bumblebees? They get along and, and you know, if you, if we respect them, we are out there uh, checking out the plants the same time the bees are out there. They're out there for four weeks, typically. And so we continue to monitor the plants and we continue to do what we need to do with the plants at that time. Um, you just got to respect the bees. And so if most of the time, if you leave them alone, they'll leave you alone. It's when you get too close to a hive or if accidentally one flies into your head and you swat it away, uh, they might get a little angry at you, but for the most part, you can make it through the season without having any issues. 
Well, just so that you know, I'm sorry, but I am not volunteering. <laughs> but I, I just think that that is so interesting. And you just have to hope that there aren't any rogue bees. Uh, but I, I but just like everything else in nature, it, a lot has to do with um, mutual respect. And, does. you know, speaking of nature, could you tell us a little bit more about how the Cranberry Marsh supports wildlife, other wildlife that's there? Yeah, that's a great question. So first of all, when you get out to Wisconsin, hopefully you'll get out here from mid-June to mid-July and we'll get a bee suit on you. And that experience alone will be amazing to stand out and hear the buzz of the honeybees and the, and the bumblebees working. I think you'll be uh, enthralled with just what's going on in the activity that's going on out there. So as far as wildlife, it's... Growing cranberries uh, requires um, water. As you heard, we we put water on for harvest that we have located throughout the property. So as far as support lands for wildlife, it's just a great, uh, uh, great opportunity or great place for a lot of um, birds and so like ducks and swans and whooping cranes. We have here sandhill cranes. Uh, I could go, the list goes on and on as far as birds is just tremendous amount of wildlife from a bird standpoint. We have um, a lot of aquatic life with the reservoirs as well, fish and turtles and frogs. We actually get some amazing bullfrogs. I don't know if you've seen a bullfrog, but it's bigger than probably both your hands put together. So it sounds to me like cranberries supports wildlife in so many more ways other than as food, like supporting the land and so on. It does. So Typically, you'll see there's anywhere probably from a five to one to a 10 to one ratio of support land for every acre of cranberries. And that could be in, in reservoirs or water or it could be in forested land. Um, we have pollinator gardens that we maintain here. Um, the neat thing is it all kind of it's there's just a symbiosis relationship in everything that we do. We have weeds that we would consider weeds for cranberries, but are extremely important to our, our honeybees for nectar. And so there's, there's a lot of things that just come together naturally to support so many, um, not only wildlife, insects, um, beneficial insects, you know, butterflies. There's, it's even mosquitoes. Now, I don't know how they're beneficial yet. Hmm. But if we can make them beneficial, we'd we'd have something that would be that a lot of people would appreciate. Well, you know, um, the the one word that keeps coming to my mind is the word sustainability with all of this. And um, I know your kids must have loved growing up in that environment where they could literally see and hear um, and benefit from the wonders of Mother Nature. Very different from that is the way that my kids, my three kids grow up and they grew up learning about food at our countertop, of course, when we cook together, but also coming to the supermarket with me and finding uh, the food after it traveled to our shelves, not where it originated from. So as you know, I wrote an entire book about food shopping and how terms on food labels could be so confusing. And I certainly understand how confusing the word sustainability is. We're still trying to figure it out. Um, so could you just tell us a little bit more about what sustainability really means to you? And can you just explain this in very, I guess, 
tangible terms so that our audience can understand what it means from the sense of your farming experience and growing cranberries? Absolutely. I think the best way to describe it is sustainability to me is really taking stewardship of of the resources that you're entrusted with. And so um, if we are looking at uh, being sustainable, really, that means we're entrusted with what's in front of us and we need to make sure that we leave it just as good, if not better than we, than it came to us as. And if we're able to continue to grow a crop year after year for years to come because of the way we are treating the land and caring for the land and what it supports. I know that um, from a consumer standpoint and a retail standpoint, they really look at, well, there's three legs to the sustainability ladder. They look at the environmental, the economic, and uh, the social. We are growing a food crop. um, And like we talked about earlier, you had mentioned in a previous conversation, we grow our kids where we grow our cranberries and our plants. And we're also growing our, our, you know, our pets. And we don't want to make any decisions that's going to have a negative impact on everybody. We, we want to make sure we're teaching our children how to treat the land for years to come. Uh, we want to make sure that we are putting in just as much as we're getting out of the land. It's a natural regulator, right? Because if I'm, if I'm doing something that's going to harm it, I am not, it's not going to be there for years to come in order to be able to do that. And our goal is to continue to, to grow our fruit and our families. It's a way of life, as I've mentioned to everybody that I'm around. Farming truly is a way of life. It's a way to raise a family. It's a way to teach life lessons to kids. Um, you know, they can, they have lots of room that they can drive out in the fields or out in the, um, out in the woods at a young age and just learn a lot of skills and you can bring them to work with you in a lot of manners and teach them some of these skills at an early age and they enjoy it. They, you know, they swim in the reservoirs, we fish in the reservoirs. Uh, There's just a lot of things that it provides as a way of life. And that's the benefit of rural living. You know, it's, it's funny. I, I lived in a city my whole life. So to me, this is like, like watching a movie is what you're describing to me. And, you know, but one thing that I feel really good about in terms of um, what people are looking for from the foods that they choose is that now more than ever, people actually want to know where their food comes from, how their food was grown. Uh, So these days, especially on social media, we also like to hear about behind the scenes stories, which is really like you're painting a picture with your words. I love when you're describing your kids swimming in the same place where, um, you know, you your, your home is there, where you're also working there. So personally for you, what what's something that you look forward to doing every day? This is not an easy life. So I know that it takes a tremendous amount of dedication and work. And you have a lot of challenges. So what is it that you look forward to doing? What brings me joy is watching not only the plants grow, but watching uh, all of the people involved in in managing them grow as well. 
the other thing that I really throw out there is if anybody has an opportunity to just come shadow for a year and experience growing cranberries, you never get into a situation where you're doing the same thing over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of diversity in what you're having to do to care for the plants or the land on a daily and weekly basis. Okay, so if you're listening out there, we're going to put in the show notes where you could get in touch with Nicole. So if you would like to go to a a cranberry farm and see how all of this occurs, um, which sounds like it's going to be fascinating, then uh, you'll be able to get in touch with her, you know, which kind of brings me to my next question for you. When I have personally visited farms, really because I have such an interest in seeing where food comes from. I have so much respect and admiration for the farmers because of how challenging their jobs are. So you grew up on a farm with your mom and your sisters. So I just have to ask you, do you have any advice for women who are interested in this field? I do. Absolutely. Really don't be afraid of agriculture. It's uh... If there's a passion and a drive and an interest that whether you're male or female, you can do really whatever you set your your vision to. And so I would say set your goals, have strong roots and foundation. Um, and because of the, the foundation that you have, your branches can really reach for the sky. That sounds like a cranberry. <laughs> it does. Set your roots and your foundation. Well, thank you so much for for being with us today and for shining a light on cranberries, how they grow, uh, their role in sustainability. And I I love learning about. Uh, I actually, besides not knowing how a cranberry grew, really had no idea about the wildlife and the rich environment in which they grow. Well, you know, we didn't even talk today about um, the benefits of cranberries, which is why I love being the host of this podcast, because there are so many things to know about cranberries and whether it's heart health or the microbiome, which we discussed in our last episode. Um, but also cranberries are so misunderstood in terms of being typecast for the fall and Thanksgiving when we really could be and should be enjoying them year through. So I'm looking forward to uh, future shows. And I thank you so much for, for being a part of this episode. So I hope everyone listening today had as much fun as I did hosting this podcast, and I can't wait for the next one. Uh, Stay up to date with the latest episodes of this podcast by subscribing to our show on your favorite podcast platform. And no worries if you were driving and listening to this and you couldn't take notes because you could check out the show notes for further detail. And again, I welcome you to reach out to us at Cranberry Institute. And I'm Bonnie Taub Dix on Instagram at Cranberry Institute on Instagram. You could reach us at Cran Institute on Twitter or go to cranberryinstitute.org. That is our website. So we look forward to hearing from you. Please weigh in on this topic and also let us know what you would like to hear for future episodes because we really try to meet your needs. Sponsored by the Cranberry Institute, it's a not-for-profit organization founded in 1951 to further the success of cranberry growers and the industry in the Americas through health, agricultural, and environmental stewardship research, as well as cranberry promotion and education. Thank you again so much for listening and for sharing your time with us.